Welcome to Underground Magnolia Podcast, elevated entertainment with me, the one and only Desiree Valto in the whole wide world. On this episode of Underground Magnolia Podcast, I have a wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Larissa Ferdinand. She has been a board-certified OBGYN for close to 20 years and is the founder and CEO of the Estrogen Doctor Company. After being in private practice for several years in the greater Orlando, Florida area, Dr. Larissa, as she's affectionately known as, wanted to focus more on than just routine gynecological exams and obstetrician duties. As a Black woman doctor treating mostly women of color, she decided to take an integrative approach to her practice by combining traditional medicine with holistic methods to help women to not only live longer, to have a healthy life filled with energy and vitality. While her goal is to help all women have healthier lives, she realized that hormones are not a joke and that women 40 and over need specialized guidance. And she's here to help. So sit back with the cup of coffee or hot chocolate and get set to take notes from Dr. Larissa, who hails from my home state of Louisiana and graduated from the renowned pre-med program at Xavier University of Louisiana. I'm also an alum. For medical school, she went to Louisiana State University, LSU. Let's start things off by talking about her journey into the women's hormone space and the differences between women over 40 and women under 40. We will tackle menstruation. What about period panties? Menopause and breast cancer prevention. Later. We'll jump into how COVID has upended medical care and what to watch out for during virtual doctor visit, also known as telemedicine. We will not mince words about controversial medical treatment of Black women during the stages of pregnancy and childbirth. Plus, find out how Dr. Larissa can help you with her future female program. Now let's listen in. Well, I am Dr. Larissa Ferdinand, and I am a board-certified OBGYN who has definitely recreated a different version of the career of being a women's hormone expert, specifically for that 40-plus club. And I believe if you definitely nurture women, especially in this special age group, but helping them improve hormone balance by helping them become more productive, powerful, and performance-driven, we're going to heal the world and we're going to heal nations. And that's a beautiful thing to recreate a career based on passions and education that you invest so much in and develop a different way of reinventing a way to educate and empower women. How does your approach differ from other doctors? I know that you do the whole body, you're doing holistic. Why did you decide to go that route instead of just, you know, being the regular OBGYN that that you go to? I do notice that a lot of doctors are switching to the whole body and more wellness aspect Mm -hmm. of of Mm -hmm. care. Yeah, absolutely. So the first part of the question, it has to do with integrating different modalities because I don't believe in a one-size-fits-all approach, but I'm one that doesn't necessarily abandon traditional efforts because I think there's still value in a lot of things that we have developed within traditional 
Western medicine background. But when we are heterogeneous, I mean, we, we're a melting pot within ourselves. And when we think of women and that heterogeneous pool, it, it's where you have to look at it from a different lens. And my biggest teachers were my patients. I live in Florida, Orlando, Florida area. And uh, so we get a melting pot of, I mean, a large migrant population here, and especially people who may live here part of the year. And they have two sets of doctors, doctors in one place of the U.S. or outside of the country and then here. And what I found was I had a good foundation of really understanding some of the the mix of becoming a good clinician, but you you really learn with hands-on training. And uh, I think to really envelop, to be, you know, a more out of, outside of a container is to really see that the world is changing. And I would have people come in and I'm like, what are you on? And I'm like, well, bring all your medicines, bring all your supplements. I recognize that number two, patients spend a lot more time scrolling through social media than they do with me on a, a, a wellness visit. So therefore, there's lots of ads and wellness and all those type of things that Dr. Google and their search engine is going crazy, right? Right about now. And so with that, that sparks questions, that sparks curiosity of really understanding what they're putting in front of me and how does this make sense and how can I curtail it and make it more practical how it can relate to their particular medical problem. But really with the emphasis of, we got to think beyond just a pap smear and a mammogram wellness fitted. We got to think about all of those gaps in between where we can really initiate sustainable triggers in our life to really prevent chronic disease, to have better outcomes, to not necessarily settle for less when a lot of that can start with that one-on-one encounter and really meeting a, a patient or a client where they are. How does care differ for women over 40 versus women under 40? I love this. I heard a quote that says, one part of your life, especially your reproductive years, your period is surrounded about getting pregnant or when it comes or factors that could be related to medical issues with your period. Then the other part of your life is you don't want to see it. You're not trying to get pregnant. What the heck happened to my cycle? Is it here? Is it not here? And then it looks a little different once again. And just the reproductive life cycle itself and dealing and partnering with women in one phase of life versus the other, it takes a different toll. I mean, at this point, when you're especially talking about 35 and up, 40 and up, we're dealing with superwoman syndrome, imposter syndrome, sandwich generation uh, at a time where our hormones are much more impacted just due to cyclic changes or just our biological clock is changing. And we're more compressed with stressors and even more so now. It's interesting. In the information age, you have all the accessibility on earth, but we're definitely mm-hmm. surmounted about more stress. I mean, we're now we're talking about self-care when it just should be okay, this should be just stuff we should be doing, right? And so that's the beauty of it all is understanding that this is a phase where even when it comes to technology and a lot of the AI and things that are put out now around women's health, initially it was about fertility. 
and addressing these cyclic issues in that reproductive stage. Now we need to center around addressing, okay, this is a like a second act. This is a new phase. These are women that are at the top of their careers, most likely when they hit. Mm-hmm. These are women who are dealing with empty nesting. These are women that most likely who have just had a divorce or entering a second relationship. That's where the holistic comes together, the W-H-O-L-E, where there are some of things going on and that has to take into consideration when we're dealing with health and wellness. Now, I'm going to ask what may be a silly question, but you mentioned periods earlier. Mm-hmm. And I have mm-hmm. just been seeing the, I don't know, distur- I don't know if disturbing may be too strong, but period panties. <laughs> what oh. do you think of these period panties? They don't seem to be sanitary. I don't know. What, what do you, should yeah. you, would you, what do you think of these period panties that are now all over the market? Well, I come from a notion of, I really love where innovation's going. and. Yes, it's strange. Like when I first saw that, and it's interesting, you know, the ads and stuff that they promo, and I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. And then I try to stroll the counters and your different retailers and everything just to kind of have an idea. What are people getting exposed to, especially during COVID? Because I haven't been in the store. And even if I'm shopping online, I'm being very specific about, okay, what are my go-tos anyway? Right. <laughs> and so it's interesting because once you start searching, all of a sudden they're in your it's in your pixel and all of a sudden, you know, you're getting more promotions of it. So now I'm somebody's radar. But I say that to say, at least somebody's listening. At least somebody's trying to push the envelope. So now we have to curate it where there's an audience and there's a product for everybody, right? I mean, think of all the different types of water. Like, I mean, mean, like there's like an owl full of water now, right? And all of it has a little (laughs) bit of everything. Like they've added, they're subtracted, you got alkaline, you got non-alkaline, you got hints of juice. I mean, it's just all this stuff. So to me, it is, there's a buyer and an audience for something. And I think it's driven from the mass amount of awareness around feminine products that we use all the time that could be laced with chemicals, different manufacturing processes and everything that could be harmful to women over time or the fact that, hey, I just want something simple and, hey, this is where I go, but it's not going to fit everybody. I mean, because even the little cups that go in the vagina. The diva cup. Yeah. The diva (laughs) cup. And there's a couple of other on the market too. And there's one that you can buy only online too. And I, and I try things, you know, myself personally, just to see if it fits me, but maybe, you know, that's, part of my traditional as heart, you know, like, okay, I, I'll take a tampon, just a regular pad any day. But I was open to it because I was like, this is interesting because I wanted to be able to discuss and talk to someone about that and know and come from a frame of not all women are going to be the same. And somebody could have looked at that ad as a me. I'm just like, wow, that's interesting. Well, okay. You know, if that works for somebody, And then somebody else can actually look at the ad and say, oh, my God, that's what I've been looking for, you know, and went straight there to go buy them. So we have options, right? We can't say we don't have options, right? we definitely have options now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now, mammograms, there still seems to be some discussion about when when you should get mammograms. So Mm -hmm. what is your viewpoint on when women should start getting Mm -hmm. mammograms? I like it how you say, you stated the question. What is 
my view, because there's a collection of societies and prevention agencies, and it can be kind of confusion to the main public because in general, I mean, when there's science, I mean, we've seen with COVID, right? Hey, it's, it's one side versus the other. So if, first of all, evaluate your, your family history, especially when we're talking about first degree relatives, like mother, sister, aunt, grandmothers. And if there's a significant line, especially when it comes to your mother, and I'll speak to that specifically, and the age of your mom potentially getting diagnosed with breast cancer. If that's the case, I usually say, well, your baseline mammogram, let's do 10 years prior to the time of her initial diagnosis, just as a baseline, still thinking and prevention and uh, checks. And we'll talk about a little later how we still need to look beyond just the mammogram too. But I think every woman should do one outside of a hereditary or a genetic defect that they may think that they have start at 40 and then between and every other year until 50 and then every year after 50. And then this depends on if we're just talking about screening. There's some women that are more sensitive mammograms where their physician may have them on a different route of getting them, whether it's just an ultrasound or if there's something that's been abnormal before and they had to detect or evaluate mm-hmm. or put under surveillance a little differently. But if we're talking about, hey, the basics, the foundation, making sure you're getting what you need as far as a screening test, then that would be what I would suggest. 40 every other year, 50 after 50 every year, because that's when you get more of the increase. Now, some people are also offering some hospitals and medical clinics. Mm -hmm. They're offering 3D scanning Mm -hmm. of the breast. What what do you think about that in addition Mm -hmm. to the mammogram? Absolutely. And that's become a lot more pushed as far as making sure you're getting additional views because, I mean, we, we've seen women, we come in different shapes of our, of our breasts. And most importantly, especially if you have had surgery or implants or anything done, you want to make sure that you're viewing the tissue from all angles, especially if you have something that may be obstructing certain tissue angles in order to have a good view. So I am a fan of doing a 3D, but oftentimes another ancillary test that's put along with it is an ultrasound. So even if you're not getting a full 3D video, knowing that, okay, you're also getting an ultrasound in the event there's something that's not uh, viewed greatly. An MRI is a great test. Unfortunately, it's not considered a screening test because of the cost related to it and it's the way that it's looked at, the benefit versus burden of cost, a particular thing. But it's one of those where that utility is also there, especially for those who might have had a lot of indeterminate tests, you know, like women who feel like, okay, I'm always going back and they're not sure. And they have to do all just I have to do this. And I think the connection, what I've learned is with putting my physician slash patient hat on is for us, it may seem like, okay, we just need, the patient just needs to follow through to do it. But for a woman, it's a constant reminder of what if they see something wrong or the other test Mm -hmm. was abnormal. That brings anxiety. That brings doubt or just, and I've had women like, hey, I don't want to do this anymore because I just get too anxious. This makes me nervous. You saying you have to come back in six months is different from you saying see you next year. And I listen to that. And I think that's important even as medical providers out there that we're still connected to that experience because that's one more thing on top of a population of women whom they're doing everything. You know what I'm saying? They're head of household, business, et cetera, et cetera. 
and they don't want to be worried about an abnormal test. And so if there's someone that's in that loop and doing those things, that's when I always say, okay, now we go beyond the memory. What can we do to feed into her particular medical paradigm to make sure that she's constantly entertaining and implementing things in her life and lifestyle changes to be well? Don't you just love all this knowledge from Dr. Larissa? Let's keep it going with how COVID has transformed medical care. We will also dive into how Black women should advocate for their own health care and then find out how Dr. Larissa's future female can help you get your health on track for success. How has your practice changed with COVID? Well, of course, it opened up the telemedicine and the virtual wide open. It was something that in different areas, particularly, Mm -hmm. it could have been more, I would say, depending on where you are, hospital, especially if we're talking about hospitals that don't have large multidisciplinary physicians, meaning that they, for instance, the ER at remote hospitals may not have a neurologist on hand, and those are your initial go-tos for a stroke alert or something. So an ER doc may stabilize, but they needed to telemedicine expertise of someone that's not readily available in their providence or jurisdiction of where that medical facility was. And so it was acceptable, it appears, prior to COVID in that particular model, meaning that, okay, well, if you don't have this, then this is our only option. But what COVID did said, well, you could do it regardless if you're the primary care or not. This is a viable option for people to still have a complete network of care. And the thing is, it was happening because I had start instituting telemedicine at least about two and a half years prior to COVID. But the issue was a large part of time insurances weren't recognizing it or could not get reimbursed completely with all insurance carriers. And so what COVID did, it made that landfill wide open where insurances had to make sure that they were covering these visits and making sure that patients were still maintaining safety where now it's more acceptable. And most importantly, people can think of it outside of that. So think of it at one point, your doctor always came to see you. And in some countries you still have that, you still have a community doctor, right? So you move from that paradigm to seeing them in person or going to see the doctor or they have medical buses or whatever you, you know, for that weekly visit of when the doctor's coming to whatever the community and then open market, you can go anywhere, go wherever you be seen. And now it's open market in the convenience of your home if you want to. So do you think that the telemedicine in general, it has opened up medical care for folks, especially people of color who wouldn't otherwise go to the doctor? I do, but it depends on what lens you look at it from, because I think underlying there's still some mistrust in the medical community. There's still social determinants of health where there's an educational component that might be there that could be like, I may not have access to a good Wi-Fi or something to speak in private about certain things or just altogether that disconnect because it's telemedicine opens up an opportunity to, to care for patients from afar and meet them where they are in the comforts of their own home. But I think what, you know, no matter what, what COVID has taught us, there is power to human connection that is beyond the computer. 
And we do believe that that is still going to be a strong component of any medical paradigm to at least have some face-to-face, if not all face-to-face, like depending like, okay, you have to make an appointment and see the doctor in face, at least gives you that luxury that it is, but there is a capacity or strength in knowing that you can do something face-to-face. So I think it opens up, but I think it is definitely still some challenges there. I was part of a discussion recently about COVID. And one of the things I feel like still being in a pandemic, because I get frustrated when people say we're post-COVID because we're not, but we're we're still in a pandemic. The issue that I find is that it exposed Band-Aid fixes on a system that's been broken for some time. Think of any political campaign or presidential election. We're yelling back and forth about healthcare, right? So that means it's a system that constantly is refining and needs to get better. And for all populations, and no specific model has been the best fit for anyone. So what COVID does is it puts a burden on all of that, right? And so it's hard to say where we go from here exactly, but I hope that genuinely just with the information that the exposure, the access that was was definitely put there in certain communities to make sure that people's needs were met because of the restraint of COVID, that those things don't die off, that all of a sudden it's not business as usual a year from now, that these exposed wounds are still taken care of and nurtured. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of systems, as a Black woman mm-hmm. doctor, especially mm-hmm. OBGYN, how do you address the reports that have come out that, um, that no matter what a Black woman's socioeconomic background is, when she's delivering a baby, you know, the mortality rate is really high and Black women are not treated that well in the hospital. How do you address those reports? It's hurtful every time I read them because I feel like I'm just as much as a victim as the next person then, you know, when you hear those stats. But I think it's important, like one of the main women who's researching this with CDC was one who ended up with a maternal morbidity and mortality, you know, with childbirth. And I thought that's so interesting, you know, once again, educated or uneducated, and that's what the statistics show that even a white counterpart with less education technically still has better odds in pregnancy than a black woman with advanced education. And it's a loaded question in a way because there's so much that we still can do, but at the root of it is, you know, really being vocal about there are constant pressures within women of color and especially black women when we're talking about jobs, home life, pressures and institutional systems that have implicit biases. And even though the intention may be well, it's the impact over time and those stressors or what we call the weathering effect of women are linked to poor outcomes in pregnancy and delivery. And then also for infants. So having lower uh, birth infant weight And it's such a, it always takes me, you know, by heart where it's a culture that just needs to change over time. Like we're an industrialized country, you know, we're like, hey, we're the USA, but our stats are 
low cut. You know, when it comes to this, you know, when it comes to comparing with these other industrialized countries, for instance, I mean, like in certain countries, you know, it's not pressured about a woman coming back to work after a year. It's part of the culture. You know, for us, we're looking at people crazy if they're not, if they haven't clocked in eight weeks after a baby. It's always hurtful (laughs) when you hear those stats. I know one of a, a young woman, she's pregnant, and, and I was just making sure, I was just, you know, questioning her and making sure that she was, when she gets ready to have the baby, that she knows about this and have people surrounding mm-hmm. her. And, and her response was that, she said, well, I have a, a Black OBGYN, so, you know, uh-huh. I'll be fine. And I cautioned her. I said, well, I said, really, the doctor doesn't come in until you get mm-hmm. closer to pushing the baby out. I said, Mm -hmm. so the people who are going to be taking care of you are going to be the nurses and other medical personnel. And that's where a lot of the issues come in because Mm -hmm. the whole thing with black women don't experience pain. We're susceptible Mm -hmm. to to pain more so than other people. So anyway, so all that to say, I was just telling her, Mm -hmm. the doctors that you have to worry about is the other people you have to worry about. So you need to have, you know, your people, your husband, your mom, whoever else, your best friend Mm -hmm. there with you to make sure that that they're doing what what they're supposed to do. I definitely hear what you're saying. I agree to a certain extent. What I find on my side of things, it's a mixture. And I will say on both sides, honestly, Mm. because you have nine, 40 weeks or nine months in this pregnancy and I don't have enough hands, arms or anything for that time when someone wants to do natural birth and Mm. doesn't even know how to breathe or just doesn't have a support system by the bedside. It's like no planning whatsoever for something you've never done before. And I get it. It's hard to find Lamont's classes. It's hard to find, you know, the resources. I get it. But I see it on both ends, like not prepared for things at all. And that just gives or lends a hand to self-advocacy and also making sure that you're looking out for yourself just as much as the nurses and the doctors. Understand at these big institutions, you probably got 12 other people in labor with you. And it's only, and you know, we're trained in very high functioning efficiency uh, things. So if there's things that you should have been asking on a prenatal course, you may not be getting that homey, lovey, lots of time type thing, we're addressing it, but asking certain questions and being a self-advocate is very important, but understand that's throughout the whole 40 weeks, not just at the time of delivery. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I know Absolutely. it was funny when uh, I did the Lamas classes, but when mm-hmm. I was actually in the birthing process, and my husband is Nigerian, and he was like, because I wasn't doing the exercise, and he was like, no, he's like, remember in the class, you have to do boom, boom, <laughs> and my mom, and my mom was just cracking up laughing, and she always <laughs> talked about that. It was hilarious. And I was like, look, just sit down. <laughs> but that was funny. But I think that I'm glad you shared that story, because I think that covers, you know, what I said. One, you at least came from a, a point of, even if your pain was so uncontrollable, you had somebody around you to coach and to support right. you and remind you of those things because that pain is unbearable. And I'm speaking from someone, I hit four centimeters and my water broke. I was like, the anesthesiologist is not coming here fast enough. I don't know what's going on, but <laughs> I'm in pain and I need to see them now. <laughs> you 
know, I knew um, that I was probably going to buckle down. But anyway, so I just have a couple more questions for you. Tell me about your future female program. What is that? Oh, awesome. Awesome. So one of the things about looking at healthcare in a different lens is I saw tossed around a lot, you know, future female. And it's used in shirts and in advertising, you know, the future is female. And I started looking at it from uh, the lens of future female of health, because regardless, this woman is identified as she has some connections with herself and the world around her. This should be someone defined as she doesn't want cookie cutter. She wants something that is going to be more fit for her because she may live a different lifestyle. Someone who's connected to her environment in such a way and thinks beyond. And then also someone who understands that innovation and those things that we can tap into with technology, with privacy included, because I think those lines are starting to get blurred right now, but we want to make sure we still enforce it. But we understand that it can be used for good. And that's what I wanted the future female component to be defined as because women are evolving creatures just as much as anything else. And the program sets off from the basic premise of improving hormone balance because women at 40 and beyond or 35 and beyond are at a very delicate time in their life where you have the changes in their cycle, changes in their mood, their mentality, the initiation of noticing more brain fog and And maybe hot flushes, night sweats, and menstruation is coming here or there like a bad boyfriend. And Mm -hmm. so (laughs) you're going through these things, but now we have some other tools that are built in the program that not only address some of these hormonal imbalance issues, but also give coaching toward life, consulting about looking more optimally at things and not just the mediocre or what's considered normal. Mm -hmm. And then another component is embracing what are some things in technology that we can use to follow trends. We have KPIs in our business. We make key performance indicators in different parts of our life. What are these indicators in your health or benchmarks so you can live not only a good life now, but you're setting yourself up for a better lifespan, a better health span? Because the thing is, COVID is already showing that apparently it shaved off two years on longevity or lifespan for people. However, at the same time, regardless, women have been living longer, but we are hit the hardest when it comes to autoimmune disease, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, depression, Alzheimer's. But I mean, these are our caregivers. These are like very much impacted. So we're living longer, but how are we living? So we have to start harvesting and planting these seeds in a very futuristic type way where the paradigm has shifted and we have to start looking that way because the world around us is changing. We're getting impacted a lot more. And so I want our women to have a quality of life beyond in these golden years instead of just saying, okay, we made a number. Well, okay, we made that number, but how are we living? And I'm glad you mentioned the cardiovascular Mm -hmm. issue because we hear more about breast cancer, but but from what I've been hearing, I was going to do a a one-woman show with a young Black woman who does Mm -hmm. suffer from heart disease, and Mm -hmm. uh, but COVID kind of put that on the side. But anyway, I was speaking Mm -hmm. with a lot of 
the American, what is it, the Heart Association and those types of yes. folks. And, mm-hmm. and really, the statistics show that women die more from heart disease than they do breast cancer. They but do. we don't really, we focus more on breast cancer. Mm-hmm. But I guess we can, I mean, we can do, yes, instead one of focusing on one, we can <laughs> mm-hmm. put it all out there and let people Yeah. Know. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's one in five, as opposed to the one in eight that is the lifetime risk when it comes to Uh, breast cancer versus cardiovascular disease, which is so on the money. And it's interesting, we're seeing a lot of those statistics really start waning, changing, you know, or shifting in that 50 plus club. This is a time where menopause is defined as the absence of a cycle for 12 months, but it's also defined as the decline of many of our hormones or powerful hormones that have several different functions. We always think it's just a menstrual thing, but estrogen itself is responsible for like cardiovascular vessel health, but it's responsible for skin changes, muscle tone, blood sugar regulation. It has many things. And so put that on top of the, any particular stressors or institutional racism or implicit biases in the workplace, or, you know, these weathering things, especially as they impact Black women, um, we're set, it sets up this environment where it does increase our risk of having some kind of cardiovascular event. And just going back and touching on that maternal factor, actually, it has moved into that top three for morbidity, mortality issues for Black women, where years ago that wasn't an issue. But now that hypertensive and diabetic disorders have increased, so does cardiovascular disorders increase because of those particular insults that can be even more worse in pregnancy. So now we're dealing with a time where we do have to put some big changes in place. And that does factor into that wellness component, going back to that whole body connection. Because when you're dealing with the mind, body, spirit, and I always say in hormones, you are optimizing someone's health because you're not segmenting it. And that's what integrative care looks like. That's what precision care looks like because you're not just focusing on when it happens, a sick care model, right? Because most of the Mm -hmm. time it's either a wellness check or if I have a stuffy nose or if, you know, I have a problem, it's more of looking at it from the vantage point of really setting yourself up to reduce those risks over time because we have the advanced science to do it. We even have what we call genomics or evaluating different changes in our variations of our DNA that can help us customize a little bit better of what your health can be. But most importantly, getting a patient or a client involved in that process. I always say a doctor-patient relationship should be bi-directional. In a perfect world, it should be bi-directional. They're coming for Mm -hmm. the expertise and the authority of understanding I can trust you, which is some of the fragmented issues that we have, you know, Mm -hmm. in our communities. So how do we build that up so we can feel stronger about the self-advocacy that we want for ourselves and our families? And I'm a believer it starts with the woman. She's the one that's going to choose the doctor most of the time. She's the one that's going to set up the appointment. She's the one that's going to shop. She's the one that's going to be the biggest consumer. You know, it starts there. So any big hospital Mm -hmm. usually has a, a woman service line because that's important because they know that that's pretty much the whole of healing the whole family, healing the community, and what I like to take it a step further, healing the world. Recently, I forced my husband to go to 
to some specialists that he's been needing to see for a while. Mm-hmm. So I made right? appointments and took them off. <laughs> so it's mm-hmm. like, okay. So we could talk all day about issues, about medical care for women, but I know we have to go. So is there mm-hmm. anything you'd like to add that I did not touch on? You're right. I mean, we can always have a part two, right? Like that Louisiana DEAUX, right? Yes. (laughs) From those groups. But I think we highlighted a lot of things. And if anything, hopefully this allows people as they're listening to it, jot down, you know, questions. What I find is that we put a lot of effort in our search engine and Dr. Google, but those are the things you need to write down and Make sure you take that as well as your prescription supplements to your physician or to your medical provider or to get some other answers. A lot of times we may just go from one fix to the next fix and the next answer. And, you know, we're driven by, hey, well, they said that this worked for them. And so all of a sudden there's a strong pull within the community. So the more information or the right information that gets on the right hands, we know that we can start passing along things that make us more armed with the right information so we could be better self-advocates for ourselves when when we're entering these environments. And I think that's important because there's a lot of burnout in the medical provider thing, you know, and I think that's not discussed a lot within the population, especially with COVID. We hear it from the lens of trying to get people replaced or cover because of high hospital admissions and everything. But When I listen to those things, I think, okay, you have a high turnover of uh, potential health practitioners or or nursing staff. That means they're overworked, they're spread thin, so they're doing their best. And that's the thing. These people are powerful. They're amazing. But it puts the onus even more on you can't necessarily go to a place and have the thought, well, I have a black doctor and they're going to take care of me. They're going to do everything. Well, help them out because they need help too. They love patients. I love patients that come engaged. I love patients that come in with a binder. It makes my job easier because I'm not searching all over technology trying to figure out what medication you were on three years ago that you want me to remember. Sorry. (laughs) We've taken out 10 minutes with time where I could have answered like half the questions you had. So that's what I want to place. And we can definitely continue the conversation. and, And those who are interested in seeing what I'm about and what I'm doing, you can definitely book a call and we can discover your needs as far as helping out with not only hormone imbalances, but what the future female of health looks like so you can produce and perform. And it's been a pleasure. I love having these conversations and that, you know, that we can center around just having better dialogue with each other and not not making it taboo, basically. So thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity. Dr. Larissa for this much-needed conversation and for all that you do for Black women, women of color, and women in general. For more on Dr. Larissa Ferdinand and to find out how she can help you with hormones and more, go to drlarissa.com. That's D-R-L-A-R-E-E-S-A dot com. Again, that's D-R-L-A-R-E-E-S-A. E-E-S-A dot com. On her site, you can send her a direct email and even schedule a call. Again, that's drlarissa.com. 
For more information on this episode, please go to undergroundmagnolia.com. That's undergroundmagnolia.com. Just click on this show and all info will be there. While on my website, you will also see all of my podcast episodes, which can be heard wherever you listen to podcasts. So please listen, rate, and review them. Email me with anything at contact at undergroundmagnolia.com. Again, that's contact at undergroundmagnolia.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at UMPodcastDV. Again, that's UMPodcastDV. Till next time, this is Desiree Avalto, the only Desiree Avalto on the planet. For Underground Magnolia Podcast, I'm out.